I want you to open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to begin a new series together out of the book of Hebrews called Compare Jesus. The word compare uh, is usually, you know, it's got a lot of negativity associated with it. If you're a human being, I don't advise that you compare yourself against other human beings. It's not good for us. Um, But as humans, we find ourselves addicted to comparative behaviors of all kind. And as we're going to discover in the book of Hebrews, there is actually an important work of comparison. But to my point that humans, you know, we just can't help but compare. If you're on social media ever, there are all kinds of memes these days that are built around this idea of comparing. I give you this. You have probably seen this guy, TikTok guy, that he's sort of this life hack buster guy. There's just terrible life hacks out there, and then he debunks it, and he compares things. Uh, Then you've maybe seen Drake, of course. No thanks to that, but then you compare it to this. Yes, please, to that. And then this girl, I think, is this kombucha girl or something like that? You know, you compare this, you compare that. So there's memes about comparison uh, that are dual pictures. Then there's charts online about comparison. Here's one. Comparing grandma to shampoo. Good at cleaning. (laughs) Smells good. Makes you happy. Falls over in the shower. Uh, I don't know. You don't have to be a grandma to do that. I had quite an incident in my 20s. We had to call a repair person. It was horrid. Um, In the book of Hebrews, there is a Greek word that appears 15 times that is translated into the word better. Can you say better? It's translated into the word better. Sometimes the word superior. I think built into the letter... The fact that that word appears on repetition like that is this invitation for us to consider that there might be something or someone that's better. I won't take the time to try to explain it, but we actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's lots of great options and ideas of potential authors out there. So while we preach our way through this series seven times this summer, uh, you can shout and scream if somebody you know, mentions an author's name, because most of us will just end up saying, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, we just, we just don't know who said it. But likely, the book of Hebrews was written sometime, for those of you who appreciate a bit of history, between 50 AD and 70 AD. And we know it probably wasn't any later than 70 AD, because Jerusalem, sort of the capital city of God's work up until that point, was ransacked by Rome in 70 AD, and the temple was destroyed. And there's just not language about that kind of stuff, although there are references to the temple in Hebrews. We just don't, you'd think that if the temple had been crushed and destroyed, they would have said something in this book. So 50 to 70. Let me give you a little more context about what was going on in the Roman world at the time. The Roman Empire ruled the known world, and the Jewish people of God were kind of suppressed under their thumb. Uh, Throughout Rome, over time, there was an evolution. Rome thoroughly embraced pagan worship of all kinds of gods. And the evolution uh, that unfolded was that it went from not just pagan worship to emperor worship. This idea that the leader of Rome is... Maybe not just a spokesperson for God, but this is, this is God himself. And then it became required. Well, if you don't worship the emperor, you're an enemy of the state. And if you don't worship our pagan gods, you're the one to blame for the problems we're having. And here's how it played out in a lot of Roman communities at the time. 
that uh, for a Jewish person or even some of the early Christians, if they were not participating in the pagan rituals of worship in the local temples, um, when there was a disaster, a catastrophe, or even when there was just poor weather or a bad harvest, guess who got blamed? It was universally accepted in these Roman communities that it was those who weren't following the proper ways of worshiping the pagan gods or the emperor. So there was all kinds of pressure on other faith systems that wouldn't bend their knee to the emperor or the other pagan gods. And then something interesting happened. History tells us, we don't um, see it spelled out in scripture, but if you look behind uh, and study some of the other historic sources around the time of the early Christian movement, History tells us that in some communities, the Jewish leadership struck an agreement with Roman authorities. They, you see, the Jewish population was large enough and was fairly you know, rebellious at times. Rome didn't want uprisings. And so the Jewish authorities came to the table and said, listen, what if we don't pray to the emperor, but we pray for the emperor? And we pray for Rome. And this seemed like sort of a, a good compromise to Rome itself. And they said, all right, uh, we'll give you an exemption. So there was expectations on the whole Roman population. You must worship the emperor. You must worship your local pagan deities at the local temples. However, if you are Jewish, there is an exemption for you. You can pray for the emperor. You can pray for Rome to your God. Now, this was a big win for the Jewish people, right? They felt a little less marginalized. There was less persecution for them in these communities where they had this arrangement, right? Now, imagine what it would be like to be a new Christian that has Jewish roots, and you're no longer, you've been sort of cut off from the Jewish community. They're like, you know, the, the Jewish community is saying, we're not with you on this Jesus thing. Yes, you have a common Jewish background, but you've defected because of Jesus, so you're out. So the Christians are now out. Do they qualify for the exemption? No, because they're no longer visibly Jewish and with the Jewish crowd. So the Christians now are feeling on the outside. They're feeling like they're being marginalized. They're feeling new pressures and new persecutions are coming their way because they don't have an agreement on the table with Rome through the Jewish leadership and culture. What does this mean? Why is this relevant to Hebrews? Why was Hebrews written? Some of the Christians were beginning to face the realities and the feelings of this pressure, this you know, being on the outside some of the persecutions, and they started considering maybe there's a way we can step back into Judaism and just sort of keep Jesus at a little bit of an arm's length. Like he's, maybe he's not the central point of our faith. Maybe we were just really excited about this at first, and now the, you know, it's like, okay, now we see it a bit more real. So Jesus isn't the center of faith, but he could sort of be an accessory, just kind of within reach, but we'll go back into our Jewish ways and we'll, and we'll trust faith from this point of view, with Jesus just sort of being one of and a helpful prophetic kind of voice, but maybe not all, maybe we misunderstood some things. So there were now movements of Christians teetering between their newfound faith in Jesus and a temptation 
to lapse back into traditional Judaism apart from Jesus. So somebody had to step up and address this. The Holy Spirit inspired some author out there to send a message to those there. The author, to them, it's as if he was saying, you're thinking of abandoning Jesus. Hang on. Compare him. You need to think about him first. If you're thinking of lapsing back or teetering that way, before you go all the way, you need to think this through. You can compare Jesus. Sometimes as followers of Christ, um, there can be a little bit of a reputation amongst some of us, I'm speaking very generally, not just in this church, but to be afraid of hard questions, difficult questions. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if there's merit to our faith in him, then he can withstand the questions, right? And it's not on you to have to come up with the answer. You, you can seek, you can search, you can ask real and good questions. I have met great people who have had their faith in Jesus shipwrecked because of being in an environment where they weren't allowed to ask great questions. I had a young adult from this church in my office in the last couple of weeks that just said, I just have to ask a few things that I'm wrestling through right now. I was so proud of the depth of the questions they asked. It was very intimidating. They are very intelligent. But there was an openness and honesty of heart where they just, you know, I've even gone to search online for views that are opposite to this. Just I, I want to understand, and some of it makes kind of sense to me. What, what do you think? And I'm not sitting in my chair trying to, hang on, shut that all down. Don't ask the questions. Just believe it. That's not me. I have to say, well done. I'm proud of you. Thanks for reaching out. Keep close to your community of faith. Keep asking important questions. Jesus can withstand it. You can compare him. And that's what the author's of the author of Hebrews is saying to those writers. It's as if maybe if the author of Hebrews was trying to speak to us today, he might, she might say something like this. You're feeling some of the pressures of being on the outside at times, aren't you? As Christians, as followers of Jesus, maybe in your workplace or in your neighborhood. Maybe you're newer to faith and you think, I don't know, do I need to go public with this? I don't know what people will think. Maybe being associated with the church or Christians or Jesus puts you in an awkward place here and there. Perhaps you've considered embracing just the social justice and doing good side of faith. You know, that's connected to Jesus. He's the origin and inspiration of all that. Maybe I'll just focus on that alone and sort of turn the volume down on the Jesus piece. Just close enough, maybe, to him to maybe still get saved from a bad afterlife, but far enough to be saved from the discomforts of being associated with Jesus in this life. Being associated with his truth. Being put on the outside at times by culture. Maybe my faith can fit comfortably into my culture, my work, my school, at no personal expense. It's as if Hebrews and the writer and the spirit read some of our thinking in our heart in our mind that might sound like that, and says, hang on, you need to think about Jesus again. You need to compare him. Now, let me just sort of, if you've read the book of Hebrews before, it's not an easy read. 
there's a lot of confusing stuff in it. And even in seven weeks that we're gonna spend going through Hebrews and uh, focusing entirely on who Jesus is through the book, you're still gonna have a lot of questions, and I will too, that's okay. We have a lifelong faith to grow in this also. But my hope is that through this series, the picture will at least get a little bit clearer, and some of the fuzzy details in Hebrews will make a bit better sense if we understand the context and the heart and the story of it. So first, let me just sort of give you Hebrews in a paragraph, and the way we're gonna do this is lifting a bunch of just some of the key lines and phrases that live throughout the book of Hebrews, and if we lift them and put them together, we actually get a clearer picture of the message of Hebrews. So with me right now, would you look at this? Here's Hebrews in a paragraph. The Holy Spirit sees that Christians could drift away by ignoring such a great salvation that they could harden their hearts and fall short of the rest promised to the people of God, and that by falling away, they would then crucify the Son of God all over again and trample the Son of God underfoot. They would then refuse the one who speaks from heaven. They will not escape judgment. Instead, Christians need to persevere, not shrink back, hold firmly to the end, and make every effort to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Okay, that's Hebrews in a paragraph. How about this? Hebrews in three verses. If I had to just bring you three verses in the book of Hebrews, it would be in chapter 12, halfway through verse one in through verse three. This essentially is three verses that summarize the message of the whole book. See this with me right now. Hebrews chapter 12, one through three says this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Think about how important that was for those those new Christians who had come out of a Jewish background and now they're feeling pressure for it and they're thinking about lapsing backward away from Jesus. And what does the author say? Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right throne, uh, right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Can you all say, consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Wow, does it not sound like the author is speaking to this category of Christians? You are teetering, you are struggling, you're wondering, did I really believe the right thing? Am I willing to pay the price for this? And instead of teetering this way, the author says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Look how he handled himself when he was faced with pressure. Ooh, boy, this water. I'm aging, you know. It's uh, spatial awareness, falling in showers. Um, So that's Hebrews in three verses. Let me reduce it one more time for you. If I had to give it to you in one sentence, the book of Hebrews in one sentence, it would be this. Remain faithful to Jesus even when things are challenging. Remain faithful to Jesus even when things are challenging. Now, the author of Hebrews builds this idea with two main things. Number one, the author delivers throughout the course of the book five warnings. And then secondly, the author calls the audience by using this word better and superior to compare Jesus. 
We may only look at this first part once in this series, so I want you at least to capture it now or have the opportunity to. Five warnings are issued to the first readers and hearers of Hebrews, and these five warnings are for us today, too. I want you to see these with me right now. The first warning comes in chapter two. It's a warning against drifting away. Drifting away in your faith. I remember um, after Laura and I were married for one year, we decided, let's go backpack in Europe. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go, I think we did seven countries or something like that in uh, several weeks. We had a great time. And then after the end of our trip, we said, okay, let's see if we can start having a family and then we'll try to come back to Europe in 25 years and do the Mediterranean next. And we got eight more years to go, I think. So pray for us. We were in this uh, cool little village in Germany. Some of you might be familiar with the Neuschwanstein Castle. And we wanted to see it. So we went, we visited it, and then we got back down to sort of the base, and we had to walk back to where our hostel was at that we were staying. And, you know, we're not experts in reading German, but we saw, you know, a few different roads, and we're like, oh, that's clearly the one we're to take. So uh, from the base starting point, there was about three different roads that went in three sort of generally similar directions. Well, we carried on on our road for about an hour, and we had some printed, this is before smartphones, so we had some printed directions to how to get to our hostel, and the, fur the further we went on the road, the less, uh, you know, the less we saw that we should be seeing. And I happened to not be feeling well as well, so I actually was progressively feeling worse, and it was raining, and I just, I was not all that thrilled. And finally, we just, we'd been walking for about an hour, and we thought, I think we're on the, the absolute wrong road. And so we had to turn around, and we walked all the way back, about an hour, and then we looked at the other two options, which seemed to start out in a very similar direction. And I think we found somebody to ask, you know, just confirm, is that the way, that's the road you want for the hostel? Oh, my goodness, okay. Off we went, and then about half an hour, we got to our destination. Drifting in faith can be like that. You see a few options, they all appear to go relatively in the same direction. They're only off by just... A, a, a fraction of a degree from each other, right? But the further you go down that road, the further you actually become separated from where you're intended to be. And if I was the devil, I wouldn't show up and say, hey, refuse Jesus. Kirsty, refuse Jesus. Joel, refuse Jesus. Brooke, refuse Jesus. Greg, refuse Jesus. Janine, refuse Jesus. I wouldn't do that. I would show up much earlier in a subtle thought and just be like, Con consider this. Why don't you slacken this just a little? And it's, it's a little easier to accept that, right? The problem is, if we're not careful, we become way off course where it leads us on a path that leads towards refusing Jesus. So, First warning is don't drift away. Second is this from chapter three, a warning against allowing your heart to harden. I remember hearing somebody quoting this uh, sort of sage Christian woman who was living well into her 80s and had been known for her wisdom and uh, just a remarkable woman of God. And they said, if you had one piece of advice for people, what would it be? And her advice was keep your heart soft. Keep your heart soft. Boy, and the longer you go in life, it's, that can be hard. 
can't it? Because people hurt, right? And so we build defenses to protect our heart, right? Or we let our heart get hard. And it's not just how we handle people, it's how we handle God. There are difficulties, disappointments, and discouragements in life, and we don't always know how to handle that. And if we're not careful, it can result in us hardening our heart towards God. And so the writer of Hebrews knows this is a problem. First, it starts with drifting, but somewhere, you know, you started just, just off course, but now you're a little further down the road. Then I'll introduce an offense. You should become offended at God because of this. And you don't have to harden your whole heart to all of God. Just harden some of your heart to some of God. And that might be a win. You see, if I was the devil, I might try that. So the second warning is against allowing your heart to harden. Third, is spiritual indifference, a warning against spiritual indifference. You see, if you start down the path of drifting away and then allowing your heart to harden, inevitably you come to a place, and I've seen this happen in people's lives, and perhaps you have too, where all of a sudden things that mattered before are now in the category of meh. I don't know if that's in the English dictionary yet, M-E-H, but it is in vocabulary. I hear it. You do too. Meh. Spiritual indifference. Fourth, a warning against deliberate sin. I mean, many of us know what it was like earlier in faith. We'd never try to sin or want to sin. It would grieve us when there was sin discovered in our lives. But then sometimes later on, if we found ourselves drifting, it can lead to a moment where we're like, nah, I'm just doing it anyways. And then inevitably, our conscience and consciences become seared and it does put people in a path where now suddenly it's not that hard you don't need a devil teasing you to refuse jesus you've drifted your heart's hard you're indifferent you're now choosing sin and you turn and the writer of hebrews saw that's possible for this category of christians that were experiencing what they were in rome but guess what we're all susceptible to it. You don't have to be in that category, in that 50 to 70 AD piece of history. Wherever you are right now, we have to be aware of what can start with a drift. Drifting can start with entertaining a different source of love or a different source of authority for your life. And that different source could be yourself. It could be someone else. It could be a passion. It could be a particular perspective you want to embrace. Drifting can start with allowing priorities to begin to subtly adjust in your life. Drifting can start with elevating other voices to be equal with Scripture or nearly equal to Scripture. The longer you live in the Christian faith, you do see, unfortunately, some others shipwreck their faith. And rarely does it happen like that. It started with a slow drift earlier on. There's four, this is just my observation. There could be more, I could be wrong, but I'll just give it to you anyways. When I've observed other people end up refusing Jesus later on, if you trace it backwards, somewhere in the drifting was minimalization of scripture, like I just, I don't have to read it that often or I shouldn't read it that often. I don't, you know, uh, praying less. 
So what are those first two? Underestimating God's voice and then underestimating your own voice. In prayer with him. And then somewhere in the mix, in the beginning of the drift, is, and it sounds weird to say, and I'm not a church attendance person. I'm not up here like, oh, you've missed a few weeks. I'm looking. That's not me. But somewhere, people start becoming a bit more relaxed with their engagement to the body of Christ on Sundays in worship. They begin redefining it a little bit. You'll hear people saying, well, this is church on the golf course. And of course it is. But if they're saying that to say, well, this is kind of becoming my only church, then they, I think they're missing something. You know what I mean? And then the fourth and last thing that I've observed in those who drift is that at some point, their first phone call friends changed from people who know and love Jesus to others who don't. And now there's great friends to be had who don't know and love Jesus. I'm all for you having them. Please do. In fact, the longer you're with us, the more you're going to hear me push you towards friendships with people who don't know Jesus yet. But your first phone call friends, what does that mean? It means when there's a crisis, when there's a problem, or there's a big thing that you're celebrating, who do you want to phone first? When that group of friends, when you start swapping out people who know and love Jesus like you do for those who don't, something is shifting in your heart, and it's dangerous territory. Because when you face difficulty, are they going to help keep you on the right path? Or are they going to say, I don't know, your God seems out to lunch. Heart gets harder. Come on, you can do this. Like, I mean, in your faith, God forgives, right? Just do it anyways. Oh. Drifting. So the author is calling the readers, the listeners, remain faithful to Jesus no matter how challenging it gets and he builds or she builds five warnings. And then if you look at the book, the more familiar you get with it, the more you discover the book is entirely about Jesus. How do we know this? The author comes out punching right out of the gates. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter one. I just want to read the first three verses for you. Hebrews chapter one. I might even propose to you that Hebrews is split into two halves, and the first half are the, is the first three verses. And the second half of the book is cha- uh, verse four all the way to chapter 13, verse 25. Let's read the first three verses right now. I hope you're in your scripture. I heard a few Bibles, actual paper. That's great. If you're on an app, that's wonderful. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets in many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Okay, these are big, bold statements about Jesus. Jesus isn't just sort of some periphery, human, pseudo-deity, no The writer of Hebrews is saying, this is God from the beginning. He was part of creation. Listen to this, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, can you say exact? He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After that, uh, sorry, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Done. First half of the book. Powerful. I think the 
the third verse. The sun is the exact, sorry, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being is one of the most helpful verses to us. It's a launching pad to several other passages that live in the New Testament. I don't have the time to point there or unpack them yet, but trust me, and you'll find a lot of this in the book of John and elsewhere in the New Testament, pointing out to us that Jesus is the clearest picture of God that we could ever have. And he's not just sort of some sort of carbon copy He is God. He is the exact representation. And if you, like me at times, have read through portions of Scripture and thought, I don't know, is this what God's really like? Or this brings up this question or this concern. Welcome to the club. We're called Christians. (laughs) We read the Bible and it's confusing, but we don't give up because of that. We dig deeper. We get to know God's heart through it. And when you're trying to figure out what God is like, because you see X, Y, and Z maybe in some Old Testament story, check it against who Jesus is, because Jesus is the clearest Evidence of what God is like to us. He is God. That's my son Jackson with whom I'm well pleased. He's considering all of you. The kids are outside. I'm not a photographer, but if you know photographers, um, it's fun when you see these giant lenses. You've seen what it's like on a screen where something is blurry and then suddenly it comes into focus. There are takes and attempts to describe God, some very accurately, some with a bit of artistic interpretation, and we're just like, I don't know, what, what is this? But when Jesus shows up in Scripture, clarity. Oh, this is what God is like. So the author of Hebrews elevates Jesus immediately in the first half of his book. And then in the second half, I think there's a slide for you to see. Jesus is, number one, exactly God. That's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book, which is verse 4 all the way, 13 to 25. He is sufficient and he is better. That becomes the message from the writer. Compare him. And in this series, we're going to look at Seven different specific topics that are brought to the forefront. And I'll acknowledge it. Some of them are a little confusing. But our job as we navigate our way through this series is to help you understand just a little bit better what these mean. Today, very briefly, I want to spend a few moments in chapter 4. If you want to flip over to chapter 4 in verse 14, we're going to start reading there in just a moment. In chapter 4, verse 14, we're going to look at two verses that really open up the next chapter four, five, six, seven, and even eight, which build this case for us to consider that Jesus is a better high priest. He's a better high priest. The author's saying, compare him. Look at other high priests. Consider other priests. For those of us that may be thinking about priests as a new thing, a priest, regardless of religion or faith system, generally represents humanity to a deity or deities, and generally represents the deity or deities to, to humanity. So uh, what might a modern priest be like in Canada right now? I'm not talking Catholic Church or even other faith systems. I'm talking about the greatest faith that's alive in Canada right now, which is not Christianity. It's faith in the autonomous self. We live in 21st century, post-Christian, post-modern, secular Canada, and the greatest faith alive in our nation right now is faith in the autonomous self. So what might the priest of the modern age in Canada be like? Well, 
For the average Canadian, they do have to do some work inside of them to appease the sense of guilt that pops up from time to time. They do have to do some things to deal and grapple with some of the moral codes written on human conscience. And so they may try to do things like this, do some good to try to cancel out the bad. Most of us humans know what it's like. We're like, oh, I made a bad mistake. Okay. Ugh. You know, we can try to clean up our mess or fix things somehow, but there's still, like, if it nags on the conscience or there's this sense of guilt, what do a lot of modern priests in Canada do? Well, I'll, uh, I'm going to absolve myself by doing a few good things. You see, I didn't honk at that person at the intersection. That was actually a good thing. I abstained from bad, that therefore good. So I think if anybody's keeping track out there, that was good, so that outweighs, right? So the, try to, the attempt to do good to cancel out bad. Um, the other thing that modern priests in Canada might try to do is compare themselves against those who are worse. That always goes great. I mean, if you're not following Jesus in the room, I, you're, I, you're welcome here, I love you, you're, you're wonderful. If you're not gonna follow Jesus, I mean, try this one. Compare yourself against people that are worse. You can always find them, and you'll feel really good about yourself, and uh, your heart will get hard as you become more and more judgy towards the others. But it's a way of sort of dealing with the guilt and the conscience issues. For other modern priests in Canada, there may be this attempt to try to punish self. Ooh, I did this. Ugh. And then there's this sort of punishment that gets turned in towards one's self. Uh, or they may try to become driven to leave a good name or a good legacy. And at least, you know, Hopefully that covers over whatever you couldn't figure out on your own. The results of that often are struggling to love yourself, struggling to feel worthy, a need to prove oneself, a pressure to live up to an expectation set by yourself or culture or society, and can lead to a dull emptiness as you continue to search and search for meaning. Modern priests. Okay, ancient Near East. Let's scroll, you know, go back thousands of years. The story goes like this. Before there was maybe gods and idols and trinkets that they worshipped, bad weather would show up and it would ruin the crops or a catastrophe would occur. And they didn't have Christians yet to blame for it, right? So what did they do? Wait a minute. There are powers bigger than us that exist out there and who offended them? We better do things to unoffend them. And so systems of worship were concocted to respond to gods of harvest and gods of weather and gods of ocean and seafaring and so on. And there was this built-in notion that most of the gods are up there partying and doing their thing and having a good time, and they're kind of taking it out on us, especially when we go wrong, so you gotta keep them happy. Make them happy somehow. So it was a, sort of an appeasement worship structure. And so priests in the ancient Near East, they mediated between people and the gods, the, they did their best to care for the needs and the demands of the gods so that the well-being of the people would be kept. Contrast that then with our Jewish history. If you look in the Old Testament part of Scripture, Christianity's birth out of Ju Judaism. Instead of being a polytheistic idea where there's a God for this and a God for that, there's one God, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit. In the Jewish history, there were priests and instead of them being there to just be sort of mediators of appeasement, they actually assisted in expressing love and devotion to God. 
Well, that's a novel idea. There wasn't a lot of love and devotion towards the other pagan gods out there, but unique within Judaism and certainly coming alive in Christianity is this idea that we can love and be devoted to our God. The high priest in Jewish history, out of all of the priests, there was one who was appointed to be the high priest. And one time, one person on earth, this high priest, got to go into the temple building, the closest innermost area called the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence symbolically lived on earth, the only place at that time. And one person once a year got to go into that place, and there was a huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the other part of the temple. And when they approached that temple, that curtain was about 40 feet high and could have been as much as eight inches or more thick. Think about that curtain. And the curtain had all kinds of artwork and designs on it, and it represented the skies and the heavens. Because in the Holy of Holies, according to the temple design, that was heaven on earth. And when you were on the other side of the curtain, outside of the Holy of Holies, you were still in the earthly part of earth. But to get to the Holy of Holies, you had to pass through the, the curtain, the heavens, right? To get into the heavenly realm. And then one time, once a year, the high priest would come in and he would bring blood from an offering and he would place it on an altar there, symbolic of God's forgiveness for his people. And it was the blood of a sacrificed animal, and it needed to be repeated on an annual basis for God's people. Now, with the, all this priestly stuff in mind, let's just read this text quickly, and then we're going to land the plane. Chapter 4, verse 14. The writer says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone where? Through the heavens. That's interesting, isn't that? Reminds you of the high priest who went through the curtain, right? Who has gone through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. That word sympathize there doesn't mean God feels sorry for you. It means that through Jesus, he suffers alongside you, and he assists actively to help you through the struggle. Then verse 16, let us then, since we have a better high priest, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is a better high priest. He's better than ancient Near East pagan priestly ideas. He's better than modern Canadian priestly ideas. And he's even better than the high priest in the Jewish faith that Jesus grew up in. What makes Jesus a better high priest? Three things quickly. Number one, He's God. In the Jewish history, one high priest, once a year, went into the Holy of Holies on behalf of all the people, and never was it God. It was always a human. But Jesus is a better high priest because he's God. He has the authority to permanently forgive. 
He has the authority to permanently forgive and to heal. That's why we find language in the New Testament that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. One of the things that a human priest would fail at is perfectly representing the deity to the people because the human was flawed too. So you might have a really nice, happy, wonderful high priest serving the people of Israel. Picture Santa Claus as a priest, if that helps you think of the happiest, nicest one out there. He was never a high priest that I know of. He still was flawed and wouldn't perfectly represent what God is like to the people. But along comes Jesus, who according to the first half of Hebrews is what? The exact representation of what God is like. And so now there's a priest who's served in the Holy of Holies who perfectly represents to you and I what God is like. Jesus is a better high priest, number one, because he's God, number two, because he's human. He is also now our best representative to God. Think of all those fools we've sent in to the Holy of Holies before. They just weren't quite good enough. I mean, they did their best. They weren't fools. They were, they were trying their hardest. But they were flawed and imperfect too. And yet, here comes Jesus, perfect, sinless son of man. And he's our best representative as high priest. Also, the simple fact that Jesus is our high priest and is human and God somehow and wonderfully makes him relatable to us makes him approachable to us. And I think it's one of the most beautiful gestures from heaven. God is empathetic. These verses that we just read in chapter four, he's able to sympathize with us in our sufferings. Why? Because he suffered too. He was tempted too. He's not up in heaven thinking, well, I, I have no idea what that's like. Good luck. No. He can empathize, he can listen in, he can relate, he is approachable. Lastly, as we conclude today, what makes Jesus a better high priest? He is both the priest and the sacrifice. I want you to just with me for a moment contrast the uniqueness of Christianity against other faith systems. All other philosophies and faith systems seem to be built around this idea that as humans, we must somehow die for our deity. Sacrifice enough, do enough, punish self enough for your deity. That's the central story of all other faith systems and philosophies. Christianity stands uniquely and boldly in different categories saying, that's not our story. Our story is that God died for humanity. That he didn't bring the blood of a sheep or a goat or a bull into the Holy of Holies. He brought his very own, said Okay, I'll pay. If this is all confusing to some of you, just watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again. It'll help. It's the blood of... Some of you, you know, you're, the second song we sung this morning was great, but you're like, wow, there's a lot of gory blood singing going on here. But when we understand our story a bit more and how sacrificing in the Old Testament and then Jesus on the cross and his blood, his blood does speak a better word. Because it used to be the blood of a bull that was brought and put on an altar. And it was just sort of this annual reminder to humanity and to God that God will forgive one day. And then God wanted to prove the greatness of his love. And in covenant fashion, which says, I give myself completely to you. Exclusively to you and permanently to you. And I guarantee it with my own blood. God shows up 
and brings a better sacrifice. He is the better high priest. He is the sacrifice. I wanna invite you to stand with me now. We're gonna respond in worship in just a moment. I want you today, right now in this moment, to compare Jesus. As we go through this series this summer, I invite you, compare him. Compare him against other priests of the modern age in Canada. Some of you know all too well what it's been like to live out that style of philosophy. It's hard. Jesus is a greater high priest. You don't have to perform to achieve something. You don't have to earn right standing with God or humanity. You can be gifted because of Jesus. What a relief. And he's a greater high priest. He's greater than any of the ancient Near Eastern priests and the Jewish priests and the Jewish high priests. Compare him. And consider what that means for you today. We're going to sing a great hymn of the church. Maybe you've sung it before and wondered, I'm not sure what all this means. Maybe it'll come to life in a fresher way for us today. If you know it, would you take a deep inhale and sing along with the team as they lead us now? Let's sing together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, of word I look and see him there to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased with his blood my life is king with christ on high with christ my savior and my god with christ my savior and my god 
One with himself. One with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. Christ my Savior and my God. If you're comfortable with it in this moment, we just hold out your hands sort of in a receiving posture. We're believing that the Holy Spirit of God is present, just working in this place right now. I want to speak a couple things to you and over you. First is this. If you follow Jesus, you belong to God. Can you just whisper that to yourself right now? I belong to God. You belong to God. He's purchased you. I know as humans, we, we're a squirmy bunch. We don't always get it right. But he'll allow you to refuse him if that's your will. But he keeps sending his love after you every time. if you know what it's like at times to live in this kind of Christianity where we feel on the outside sometimes, unpopular, pressured, remain faithful to Jesus. Even when it's challenging. Let me pray for you. Father, we need your spirit for this kind of strength. Some in this room know what it's like. Some online know what it's like to have a coworker who mocks. To have difficult business decisions to make where you know that there's a, a code from the living Jesus written on your soul that you can't go against. Some in this room know what it's like where popularity at school is on the line. Reputation or image is on the line. And we need your spirit strength to remain faithful to Jesus. Now, as we go into your world, God, on your mission, we declare again our dependence upon you. We need your power, your presence to flow through us so that your love and truth can fill our lives and touch others through us in your world. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Uh, Monique and team, if you do want to just lead in a couple other songs for a few moments, we're going to allow this room right now to be a room for prayer, for um, worship. If you want to uh, fellowship and chat and all that, I hope you do. Just head out into the lobby or outside. We're just going to let people linger in this room for prayer, uh, ministry, that kind of thing. So bless you. Have a wonderful week. Pray for good weather this week. See you at camp.